Welcome, everybody, and welcome, Senator Murphy from Connecticut to come all the way here from Connecticut to come see us. Um, uh, we're honored to have you here. Um, I've known the senator for probably 11 or 12 years. I knew him when he was a Senate, when he was in the Connecticut State Senate, and then when he ran for Congress, we got to know each other, and now in the Senate. And I want you to know that he, um, he's sort of violating the Senate rules by being a very active junior senator from Connecticut. Uh, he's not uh, laid back. He has a point of view. He's working across the aisle with, Dem with Republicans. Uh, he has famously involved himself in gun control, particularly, uh, and famously also had a filibuster, which he started on his own uh, to get a gun control bill. Um, he's been active in, in many domestic areas. But what's astounded me in my experience with him over the last uh, many years is the degree to which he has become such a knowledgeable person on foreign affairs. He travels, he talks, and he listens. And I've watched him perform among many different audiences. And there are few people in the Senate that I know, and I've met 50 over the last two years over this deal, uh, who have a grasp of this issue to the extent that he does. And you will hear from him today, I'm sure, the grasp he already has of this immigration issue. And he'll probably have something to say about that. But I have a personal pleasure and a great honor to present the junior senator from Connecticut. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador uh, Lures. And let me just return the, uh, the, the compliment and the admiration. Um, uh, both Bill and uh, his uh, brilliant wife, Wendy, have been just great friends uh, of, of mine. Um, counsel to me, I, I, listen, I was um, you know, the chair of the Public Health Committee in the state legislature. I don't have any family background in either politics or international affairs. And so my learning curve as a freshman congressman, and even more so as a new member of the Foreign Relations Committee, was and to a certain extent is still very steep. And um, Bill is one of the people that I've come to rely on for, for good advice and uh, as well as friendship. And you know, I still remember uh, sitting in my office with, with Bill and, and Tom Pickering when uh, they had this germination of an idea that no one else was willing to talk about, this idea that you could uh, have a conversation with the Iranian government that could end up making this world a uh, safer place. It was an off-limits topic um, to Congress at the time. You almost felt like you, you know, couldn't publicize the meetings you were having with this, um, with 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 these rebels in the Iran project. And yet today we are in a world that is safer because of the work that Bill and so many others did. Thank you to all the partners who uh, made this uh, possible, uh, to the Atlantic Council especially. Um, uh, you've been great, uh, great friends too. Um, so I'd love to leave as much time for, for questions as possible to the extent that I'm the you know, member of the political branch that's here today. I'm sure folks have questions uh, about what's going on. Um, I have them as well. Uh, and um, you know, I think one of the things that we know um, 
is that President Trump is doing everything he said he was going to do on the campaign trail. Uh, and that was one of the big open questions that um, optimists, many of them Democrats, many of them Trump voters, convinced themselves would not work out the way that it has. A lot of people said uh, that this was all campaign rhetoric, that he doesn't really mean it, he doesn't believe it in his heart, and you will see a pivot occur once he becomes president. And it was reinforced by the fact that when his nominees for defense and secretary of state uh, for homeland security came and testified before the relevant committees, they didn't seem too shy to directly contradict some of the policies that President-elect Trump, candidate Trump, said that he would bring to the Oval Office. And so again, you could stand back and tell yourself, okay, this isn't really going to happen. This is going to be different than what he said. And yet, um, on policy after policy in the first 10 days, it's pretty clear that he meant everything that he said. And I'll talk a little bit uh, later at the end of my remarks about uh, the Muslim ban, the executive order, but that's a perfect example of campaign rhetoric that has now turned into policy. So for everybody that thinks that he is not going to rip up the JCPOA, remember how this administration has played out thus far. Remember that up until, um, that, that through the first 10 days, um, he has done everything that he promised he would do. Um, and that inside information that we all thought that we had, that he wouldn't put into place the ban on Muslims, that he wouldn't do this or that, has not been reality. Um, so I, I think we have to start from a defensive posture here. Uh, and we have to continue to remind uh, our colleagues, Republicans and Democrats, that all of the Armageddon predictions that were made about the Iran nuclear deal have simply not come true. That Iran, with minor exceptions, has complied with all of the expectations and requirements of them. They've concreted the Iraq plutonium reactor. They've uh, gotten rid of 97% of their stockpiles. They have not contested the inspection regime. They have not and they, and they have done all that while not realizing the economic benefit that Rouhani and, uh, and Zarif and others promised the country. It's important to remember that because of the imposition of the existing set of sanctions that didn't go away, because of you know, the understandable general reluctance of commercial interests uh, to do business with uh, Iran, um, this bounty that many of those in favor of the deal promised has not come true. And yet despite that, um, uh, despite the fodder that had been handed to hardliners, the um, regime has by and large, with almost no exception, stuck to their requirements uh, under the agreement. And so we need to continue to come back uh, over and over again and tell this story and, and, and talk about how you know, a variety of opponents of this deal are now begging the administration, um, including sort of the mainstream Israeli defense establishment to um, hold on to it and to continue uh, to uh, enforce it. Um, but I also think we need to be cognizant of what's happening in Iran today. And you've already talked about this, I'm sure. I'm sorry I missed the first panel and we'll talk about it. Um, the hardliners see an opportunity. They see an opportunity to force Donald Trump to unwind this deal himself. 
they see an opportunity to have the failure of the deal be on America's hands. Now, we all knew that that was the game that they were going to play from the start, but they now have a new opportunity, a, a reckless, unplanned, unstrategic American administration who might fall uh, for a tactic run by the hardliners, forcing uh, the international community to blame the United States, not Iran, for this deal being scuttled. It's why many of us have uh, urged a cautious approach, even under the Obama administration, to a conversation about new sanctions against the Iran regime. Um, now, let me be clear. Um, I supported the nuclear agreement. I think I was one of the first to announce uh, the support in the Senate, um, specifically because I don't believe that that agreement um, disallows Congress from passing new sanctions on non, just to sanction non-nuclear uh, behavior. Uh, and I certainly would count these ballistic missile tests, reports as you've been sitting here of potentially another uh, ballistic missile test. I certainly think that those uh, actions warrant a discussion about sanctions in the United States uh, Senate. I think that the actions that the Iranians have taken uh, to allow for the slaughter of civilians inside Syria warrant a conversation about sanctions. Um, but it should be a careful conversation that acknowledges uh, the potential reciprocal actions taken by Tehran. Um, and I think we uh, sort of need to step back and look at this ban on immigration um, in the context of the same conversation. This is seen by the Iranian regime as a new set of sanctions. Um, now, that's not the right way to look at this. This isn't in r response to anything they did on, with respect to the nuclear agreement. Um, but uh, it, it clearly empowers the hardliners. I mean, when the relative moderates, and of course moderate is a truly relative term in Iran, are running around talking about this new opportunity to engage with the West, this, this um, imperative, the, 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 this, this need, this mandate to reestablish Persian greatness by becoming part of the international community again, um, it scuttles uh, that entire argument to now have the Trump administration labeling not the Iranian regime, but the Iranian people as enemies of the United States. Right? When we've engaged in sanctions um, uh, against, uh, against foreign governments, we try to the extent possible to level them first against governments um, and only second against people. And even when they ultimately affect people, economic sanctions are sort of you know, targeting broad commercial interests and the results filter down to affect people. An immigration ban is fundamentally different. Right? It is not leveled at political leaders. It is not leveled broadly at the economy. It is not leveled at high-ranking commercial interests. It is leveled directly at the people of that country under the assumption that everyone in that country is a threat to the United States. Now, despite all of the terrible stuff that the Iranian regime has done to fund and to sponsor terrorists and terrorists and radical organizations in the Middle East, there is no evidence that the Iranian people pose a security threat to the United States. That's just fundamentally not true. And this ban uh, on immigration from Iran to the United States is a gift 
to the hardliners at a moment in which we should not be giving them gifts. This is a tenuous moment for, um, uh, for again, the relative moderates inside Iran with the death of Ayatollah Rafsanjani. This is a movement that doesn't need another body blow, and yet they got it. Um, and so if your goal in the end is to make sure that the radicals and the hardliners, those that do regularly profess the death of Israel, who do want to pursue a, a policy of wreaking havoc in the Middle East, who, who wouldn't be afraid of war with the United States, if you, pursue, if you believe that we should pursue a policy that doesn't effectuate that end, um, then the decision to hand them a, a victory, a recruitment tool, um, is maybe the dumbest part of this executive order, and that's saying a lot. Um, and so I, I, I think that w politically, as we try to make the case to Republicans about why they should join us in opposing this order, um, we need to do it uh, for national security reasons. And it is all contextual within the discussion over the JCPOA, uh, because every time you empower the hardliners and conservatives inside Iran, you are making it more likely that they are going to set in place a set of events that will ultimately lead to that agreement collapsing and for Iran to get back on a path to a nuclear weapon, which is what many inside want. Uh, and um, I know that it's a bipartisan imperative to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. We, we, I tried to, to tell people during that debate that there are lots of debates in the United States Senate in which we disagree on the end, right? Not just the means um, on, 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 on healthcare. We disagree on the end on, on climate change. We disagree on the end on, on Iran policy. We never disagreed on the end. We didn't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. We just disagreed on the way to get there, whether it was through diplomatic means or through military means. Well, um, now that we know that the diplomatic means is working, I do think there's the opportunity in the context of this executive order to bring Republicans and Democrats together. And it's taking Republicans a little bit longer than we would have hoped. Um, uh, we didn't see a lot of comment on Friday and Saturday, but on Sunday you saw a tumult of Republicans coming out and saying, for national security reasons, um, uh, this is... Um, uh, an ill-thought-out idea. And I do think, while they might not have listed the nuclear agreement in their statement, you have to view it uh, in that context, because even those that voted against it uh, are now um, either quietly or publicly calling on the administration uh, to uphold it uh, and to focus on enforcement rather than abandonment. Um, I've said to a lot of people that um, you know, this feel, it, it, it feels like I have a totally different job today than I did for the first four years in the United States Senate, right? Um, it, it, you know, I, I think we're all sort of rethinking how we order our days, what we spend our time on, trying to figure out anew what matters, what doesn't, what the rules are, what the rules uh, aren't. Um, but what I do know uh, is um, that the work that you have done, the people in this room, uh, the pioneers uh, behind the Iran Project, um, it, it, Without it, we would not be at the point we are today. Um, and without your continued engagement, I know he will do what he said he will do. Uh, and so the fact that this room is filled and that there are lots of others uh, who care about uh, remaining 
um, loyal to this agreement and to the historic benefit to national security that it has, um, that it has caused, um, it makes me a little bit more confident that despite an incredibly tumultuous uh, time that we'll be able uh, to hold the line. So um, uh, to Bill and to, and to Barbara and everyone else, to all the ambassadors here that are present, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to your questions. So I think I'm just going to sit here and do questions. So yes, go ahead. We're gonna, yeah, lead away. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Barbara Slavin. Um, very basic question: Is there anything that Congress could do, or that you could imagine it doing, uh, on the visa and immigration ban at this point, or do you think it's just going to work its way through the courts? Um, so I'm uh, introducing legislation later today uh, that will. Um, forestall implementation of the executive order, uh, essentially by defunding. And I'll introduce a, a bill later today that will um, cut off all funds for the implementation of the order. Uh, Senator Feinstein will also be introducing legislation later today that will um, uh, rescind the order through a different means. Um, but by the end of today, there will be legislation that Republicans can look at and potentially sign on to that will stop this order from going uh, into effect. Um, and we are talking as we speak with Republican Senate offices about their willingness to join us uh, on this measure or potentially a, a future measure. Um, I'd be really surprised if there are 60 votes in the Senate for um, a piece of legislation that um, rescinds the order, though not shocked. I would be more than surprised if there are the votes or even the willingness to call a piece of legislation like that in the House of Representatives. Um, and as I was describing this um, bill that I was working on to my eight-year-old on Sunday, he, 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 he said, yeah, but, but dad, but, the, but this is my eight-year-old, but dad, the, but, but, but doesn't the president have to sign it? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, that's true, that's true. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the courts remain our, our, our better remedy here, and, 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 you're, and, and you'll hear a lot about the, the legal argument. It seems pretty clear to me that on immigrant categories, um, the 1965 law is dispositive. You can't discriminate based on religion or national origin. Um, a little bit less clear as to how that um, prohibition against discrimination applies to refugees, um, but clearly there's a prohibition on um, on, on, on non-refugee Im uh, immigrants to this country. Um, so I, I think the pathway is much more likely to go through the court system. And I think if I can get to a sort of deeper political level here, um, you know, the reason, as I understand or as I read it, that Republicans are unwilling to join us um, is not because they disagree. Um, with the position we're taking, not because they agree with the ban, um, but because, uh, you know, I guess they just have more important irons in the fire right now as far as they're concerned, that they want to get through these budget reconciliations, um, the, the Affordable Care Act repeal and the trickle-down tax cut uh, before they start, you know, creating lines of cleavage with him on other issues, so they don't want to lose his support for their economic agenda and their healthcare repeal agenda, and so they're trying to sort of stay close to him right now. And listen, I think this has um, catastrophic implica implications for the country. I think we're shrinking in the world's eyes every single day, but that's my read of why you haven't seen more bipartisan work on this issue since Friday. 
I've just been informed I'm supposed to, to call on people, so let me call on people. Um, lady back here. Wait for the microphone and ask a question. Thank you. Shala Sadiqi, Voice of America, Persian TV, sir. Um, Mark Dobovitz, Executive Director of FTD, today mentioned about uh, upcoming sanctions in the Congress uh, in regards to Iran's other activities. So what is your forecast on that? Do you have enough votes to object to that in the Senate and in the Congress? Uh, you know, I think my approach will be um, serious and careful. Uh, as I said um, you know, in my opening remarks, uh, I think Iran has conducted itself in a way, especially with regard to their activity in Syria and their continued violation of UN resolutions on ballistic missile tests to warrant a conversation about sanctions. Um, I think the question is um, whether we can right size uh, that conversation and that policy. Uh, there is clearly appetite amongst Republicans to rush headlong into uh, a new sanctions bill. Um, Many of them are doing that because they seek to um, unwind the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, uh, others are interested in it n not because they want to kill the deal, but because they actually believe in additional sanctions. I, you know, I, 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 I think it's a serious conversation that we have to have, and I don't think I can tell you whether there are the votes there to pass it or to defeat it unless we know what we're, you know, what, what, what we're talking about. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very delicate conversation. Uh, Senator, I'm Harlan Ullman from the Atlantic Council. Uh, assuming you are prescient and President Trump does abrogate or somehow avoid and neutralize the JCPO, could you comment and speculate on some of the consequences here, what we might do in the region and elsewhere as to how you could see this unwinding more than just the treaty? If it unwinds, you're saying? Yeah, sure. Well, if, if, if Trump abrogates the treaty yeah. and the other partners do not, then how do you see the, con how do you see the consequences and, and what is your response to that or what do you think can happen on the Hill, if anything? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, if, 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 if we were to abrogate the treaty and, 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 I, and I, by extrapolation, then reimpose sanctions, um, even if the Europeans continued to abide by the treaty, I can't understand how the hardliners wouldn't prevail inside Iran and restart in some way, shape, or form their previous nuclear program. Now, maybe they don't rush to a, a weapon, um, but they certainly put themselves in a position similar to what existed prior to the agreement, where breakout you know, is months rather than years. Um, and you know, that would scare the hell out of me, given the way this administration has conducted itself in the first 10 days, to think that Iran could get to a weapon within a handful of months um, if our foreign policy melted down. Um, you know, boy, that's a, that's a truly scary proposition. Um, and uh, listen, we're gonna st we don't know yet what this administration's appetite is for military action. We get, we literally get two diametrically opposed views on alternating days, right? We hear sort of Trump, 
you know, attack Lindsey Graham and John McCain for wanting to start World War III, and yet he, you know, has already started to dramatically ramp up military activities um, inside the Middle East. Witness, um, you know, first American being killed um, inside Yemen uh, uh, this uh, this weekend, uh, and certainly some of his nominees. Um, you know, come from a fairly traditional neoconservative knock them in the teeth school of, of, of international thought. So it's just really unclear that if we ever got to a position where we felt like the Iranians were close to breakout, you have some people in that administration who I'm convinced would recommend military action, but then you have another sort of school of rhetoric from Trump himself that, you know, suggests otherwise. I and mean, it's, you know, it's real, real hard to tell how it would play out. Hello, my name is Andrew Hanna. I'm a reporter with Politico. Uh, during a conversation between German Chancellor Angela Merkel and Trump on Saturday, President Trump on Saturday, she reportedly reminded him of the United States Treaty obligations under the Geneva Refugee Convention, which requires signatories to the treaty to, to, to take in war refugees on humanitarian grounds. My question to you is, do you think President Trump's executive order is in violation of international law? Well, I guess I'm, I'm so focused on US law um, now that I, I can't give you an opinion on international law. You know, we first start with our own law and then we move to international law. I'm convinced this order is in violation of, um, of US law. And I guess I, I won't profess to have an opinion on international uh, law. Uh, Don Lamb, University of Chicago. And I wanted to ask uh, you, uh, Senator, whether uh, Russia and Putin uh, may have a positive role, believe it or not, to play in persuading uh, this administration to keep the JCPOA in place. Yeah, boy, it's hard to it's hard to think of Russia having a positive role in this administration, but um, but I will no, I will submit that they were straight players, you know, for most of the way on this negotiation from every readout of those in the in the room, uh, and um, you know, given the the muck and the mire that is Russia's involvement in the Middle East today, they likely don't have reason to you know, try to have things get even messier uh, through a nuclear-armed Iran or a sort of addendum military confrontation between the US and Iran over a potential nuclear Iran. So yeah, you can certainly envision um, the Russians playing, um, you're playing a role here to convince Trump to stick to the, uh, stick to the deal. Uh, but you know, just remember, everything that we assumed about the U.S.-Russia relationship is up for grabs right now. And so, you know, we, you know, over the last four years at least, knew what we could work with them on, and we had been successful at times in compartmentalizing that. Right? We could compartmentalize, uh, you know, questions uh, about Iran. We could compartmentalize to an extent questions about counterterrorism, and and. and that wasn't affected by the utter dysfunctionality of our relationship on other issues. I just don't think you can assume that that continues um, because there are going to be some parts of the relationship that might become more functional if we, for instance, um, drop sanctions. Um, and there are other parts of the relationship that might become much more dysfunctional, like the potential crisis in, uh, um, unfolding in the Balkans. Uh, today. Uh, and all of that may cause 
these relationships like that over the JCPOA to get more topsy-turvy. Senator, thank you for coming. Uh, I just had a quick question. Uh, you, you said you're going to introduce legislation, which probably is not going to be signed by the president. What do you think other people could do? I mean, people start, started donating to ACLU uh, to help them, you know, whatever they do. Uh, what could other people do uh, in terms of fighting the executive order? Thank you. Yeah. Well, listen, I, you know, I think, and this is, a, this is a, a broader statement, but, you know, I think one of the lessons of the last 10 days, and I don't want to get too political here, but, you know, is that political action matters. Um, I don't think it's coincidental that Republicans came out in opposition or in critique of the ban only after there was a massive public uproar to it, not just on the coasts, um, but, you know, in Alabama, right, there were 3,000 people who came out in Alabama to protest uh, this action over the weekend. And so I do think that engaging in, in, in peaceful dissent uh, is a means to push, especially in this issue, to push Republicans who in their gut and in their head know what's right and know what's wrong for political reasons they've chosen not to verbalize it. I, I think uh, action um, in the way that we've seen thus far you know, is effective here. There are other places where it may not be effective. It might not be effective on the White House. In fact, it seems to have had the opposite effect um, since, uh, since Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But certainly on Congress, it has, uh, it has an effect. <laughs> My name is Dick Arndt, former president of the Fulbright Alumni Association. And down here is uh, Mr. Ricks, who's the president of the Peace Corps veterans of Iran. So between us, we carry a certain amount of soft power weight, you might say. Uh, the question arose in the, last, uh, in the last session. It precisely was asked before. What can we do other than reach out to Congress? Are there other means of support in this country for the education of both ends of the political spectrum, the both ends of in Iran and in the United States, on the question of the JCPOA? Well. We need to build a massive political movement uh, around selling soft power. Um, and that sounds like an oxymoron, like how do you build a political movement around selling soft power, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it is never historically sold that well, and that's why we have hard power, because it sells a lot more easily, um, you know, connects with people's gut much better than soft power does. But, you know, we, we didn't necessarily have to do that for the last eight years. We didn't get a lot of soft power in the eight years, but we had a president who at least talked a lot about it, even if he didn't submit budgets that, you know, actually backed up that talk with appropriations. We now have to do that. Uh, we need to explain to people, you know, think about Russia. We need to explain to people about how Russia exerts influence in the world. Yes, it has a much more modern military than it did 10 years ago, but it's not really asserting its power militarily. It's asserting its power asymmetrically through information warfare, through good old-fashioned bribery and intimidation, through energy bullying. And we have no ability 
to meet those, um, uh, those strengths with commensurate strengths and tools here in this country. Uh, and, and, and it comes back to this question of the supporting the Iran nuclear agreement, right? The Iran nuclear agreement was made real because of the work of diplomats, right? And yet diplomacy is woefully under-resourced all around the world. We have more members of military bands today than we do diplomats in the State Department. Um, and so if you want to learn the lessons of the JCPOA, if you want to respond to the new threats that are presented to the United States, we have to build um, a grassroots movement in which people and existing political groups um, that already have power um, decide to care about or add to their advocacy, um, advocacy for smart power. Many of you have worked with me um, on a, a, a new budget for international affairs that dramatically pluses up um, support for non-military tools that the president has. I'll be, uh, it's, it's in its final stages. I'll be unveiling that, um, that new budget, that new way of funding international affairs uh, very shortly. Uh, and I hope that that document um, is gonna be part of that exercise. Uh, good afternoon, I'm Faye Mokhtadar. Uh, I'm a member of Atlantic Council. Uh, Senator Murphy, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Barbara, and thank you, Atlantic Council, for organizing such an amazing event. Uh, my question to you as uh, uh, some of the sound-minded people around our current president, like General Mathis, had uh, um, numerous time uh, uh, basically emphasis on the fact that this agreement is an agreement that is signed by the United States of America. So I think he wanted to make sure that uh, the United States has a, uh, on the international uh, stage, uh, keeps his promises. Otherwise, nobody else in the world would ever sign any agreement with the United States. So what do you think? Thank you. Well, I, I, you know, I think it's, um, I think we don't know yet what influence Mattis is going to have in this administration. He clearly had no influence on the executive order signed Friday. Um, but, you know, at least as Trump professes, he has influences on other questions like the, uh, like the administration's position on torture. Um, he makes a strong case, right? We all believe it. We all know why that's true. Um, but, you know, step back and start to consider what this administration's motives are. Um, think about the fact that right now, it looks as if the most powerful person in the administration has professed a desire to completely destroy national and international institutions. Right? This is what Steve Bannon has said. Um, and so if, if, your, if your agenda is to destroy institutions, then stare decisis, right? consistency of opinion and policy, not really something that you care about when you wake up every morning. Um, so I think we're, you know, we're just learning about what it is that drives this administration. And it may not be the things that drove every other administration, right? It, 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 it may be that they are interested in inconsistency rather than consistency. Um, and that's something that would be very difficult for everybody to get used to and very, very dangerous in my opinion. Yeah, one more. Yeah, we can do one. Yeah. Edward Levine, Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. If we look at coming legislative fights over non-nuclear sanctions on Iran, 
even though the bills will not go to the Foreign Relations Committee, it is likely that the Foreign Relations Committee will be looked to as one of the centers of expertise. And I wonder how the Democrats on the Foreign Relations Committee are going to react to these proposals, given that some of the senior Democrats on the committee were not known for their love of the JCPOA. Yeah. Well, I wonder too. Um, um, I, 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 listen, I think it'll, it'll, it'll in part depend on the intent of the proposals. Again, I, I can't speak for every, you know, every Democrat, never mind every Republican. Um, but I do think that there's a consensus, even amongst those who voted against the agreement, that the best course of action today uh, is to enforce it and to keep it in place. And I think I can actually speak for, I think, I think Ranking Member Cardin has you know, publicly stated that he thinks uh, that our policy today should be to enforce the agreement rather than uh, to abandon it. And I also think he's voted that way. So, um, so I think my, my, my guess would be that Democrats who either voted against it or were very openly critical of it will try to divine the motivation behind the sanctions bills that are being presented and will try to game out what the result of those sanctions bills will be um, because I think you do have a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who don't want this thing to ultimately fall, uh, fall apart. You know, but again, I come back to what I said at the beginning. I, I do think it's important to remember that even for those of us who are the most ardent supporters of that piece of legislation, we made it clear that we were not forestalling our ability to vote for sanctions later on. And, and why, did we, why did we say that? In part because we wanted to convince our colleagues that the JCPOA was not a referendum on all of Iran's activity, right? The, the, the biggest sticking point in that debate, the reason that it might not have passed was because the opponents wanted to say that you shouldn't sign any agreement with Iran until we settle all of our issues with them. And we said, no, 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 we need to settle the nuclear issue. Um, while admitting that we leave unsettled issues over human rights, ballistic missile tests, support for terrorism. Well, if, if I want to be consistent in that position, then I have to be open uh, to conversations about new sanctions. And if it is true that they launched another, uh, if they did another ballistic missile test today, well, then, you know, they know exactly what conversation is coming in this Congress, and they shouldn't be surprised by the fact that we're going to open up that debate. Again, I think we have to engage in it very carefully. We have, to, we have to game this out, you know, one or two or three steps uh, ahead of time. Um, but, but I have to be intellectually consistent, and that means um, engaging in that conversation, not prejudging the outcome, but engaging in it. Take one more. One more question. Sure. Uh, Senator Haigugarat's reporter of Argus Media. Uh, do the events of the past weekend change your decision or thinking in terms of uh, voting to confirm Rex Tillerson? I was, I think I was the, f the, the first to announce my opposition to Tillerson, so no, I will not be voting to, uh, to, uh, to vote for Tillerson based on this weekend's events. Um, yeah, no, I, I well, I think I, one of the things it does here is that I, I, the Congress did give both Mattis and Kelly you know, a little benefit of the doubt based on the fact that in their confirmation hearings, they opposed President Trump's policy on the Muslim ban. And then 
you know, maybe it's not their, I don't, I don't know what happened. Reports are that they weren't consulted on this, or maybe Kelly was being consulted as it was being put into place. But, you know, clearly they didn't have any impact on Trump's decision to impose this reckless, uh, harmful, dangerous ban. And so to the extent that nominees are, you know, trying to push their candidacies by telling Democrats that they're going to stand up to President Trump, that has a lot less purchase, should have a lot less import than it did before Friday. Um, because we were told that Madison Kelly would tell the president how dangerous it would be to ban Muslims from entering the United States. Either they lost that case, didn't make it, or were never consulted. Uh, and so I think that just speaking on my behalf, that makes me less willing to support a nominee simply because I think that that nominee is going to be a sane, reasonable voice inside the administration. Uh, that doesn't seem to have been borne out with respect to some people's belief about what the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Homeland Security were going to add to this administration. Um, again, uh, I, uh, uh, we're in the middle of this right now, so I got to head back uh, to re-engage in, in this particular debate. But uh, again, I, this is a tremendously important time for you, you all to be focusing on this and, and, and to uh, Barbara and Bill and everybody else. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain seated as the senator exits the room. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be having a brief break now, and our next panel will begin at 2.30. Thank you.